There's uh, two types of uh, messages or sermons that pastors tend to give. One tends to be uh, topical, you know, where you just pick a topic from the Bible and you, you search for a bunch of different scriptures and kind of collate them all together and then uh, give a talk on, on what the Bible says about a particular topic. We've done a few uh, messages, even a couple series like that uh, in the last 19 months since I've been here. And the, the other type of uh, series of messages that a pastor can do is what we call more of an expository or, or book study. Uh, many of you have been around the church block know what I'm talking about, where you just pick a book in the Bible, say the book of Second Peter, which is what we're in right now, and you just kind of go line by line, verse by verse through it. And though both are absolutely legitimate, I mean, they really are, like one's not necessarily better than the other because they all exegete God's Word and, and use God's Word to teach us, um, some pastors tend to like or prefer one over the other. And the reason I tell you all this is because, like, I'm happier than a pig in slop right now in my... Um, in my preparation, and that is that I get to study the Bible, like one book, line by line, verse by verse, throughout the week, and then present the findings to you on Sunday morning. And that's what we're doing. We're doing that the expository book study of Second Peter right now. And, and I, just, I guess what I want to say is just thank you for allowing me to do this. Thank you for even paying me to do this because you don't have to. And uh, don't tell the elders that, but you don't have to. And, uh, and I just love what I'm doing right now. And, and I, I just get so excited about the teaching time and being able to present to you the Word of God. And, and I've never said what I'm about to say in 19 months. And, and it might sound a bit uh, braggadocious or arrogant. I don't mean it to be this way. But I, I'm so fired up about what we're going to look at right now. That, but it's so much meat. There's so much to it. But if you ever got the CD or got on the web and listened to it again, this might be your time to do that. I'm just telling you, we're going to rush through some stuff, like seven verses uh, over the next, what, 35, 40 minutes, and uh, well now you're counting 38 minutes, and then, uh, and then what we're going to do is, uh, is have, have our elders fund offering and then go our way, and, uh, and, and I feel like much of it's just going to go like this, uh, but, but it's such rich stuff. I'm only giving you about 70 well, 60% of maybe what I studied this week, it's just the Word of God is so good. And, uh, and I just wanted to say that to you, that you try to listen close. Let's try to study together what, what God has said. Because I'm telling you, folks, this is life-giving stuff to our souls. I've already been applying this since about Wednesday of this week. And I'll just say this, it works. What we're going to talk about today works. You'll see what I mean as we go along. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Um, I, I know we don't worship the Bible here, Lord. Tim Kimmel made that really clear to us last week. Uh, yet, Lord, at the same time, your, your Bible, the word, leads us to you whom we do worship. And without it, we'd have no cogent knowledge. We'd have no understanding of who you are. We'd be lost in the cosmos, as Walker Percy says. And, and Lord, we'd, uh, we'd be wondering forever who you are and what you're about. But that's not the case. You've told us who you are. You've revealed yourself to us in your revelation, taking over 1,500 years of a time span to, to show this world who you are. And now 2,000 years later, Lord, we still read these books, and they're just as life-giving to us in the Bible as, uh, as they were 2,000 years ago. And so, God, I pray you speak to our hearts and minds now. May we understand your word rightly. May, as I always pray, we apply it diligently and faithfully to our lives as well. And I pray these things only and always in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. And so here's what happened, <clears throat> is that this week I was talking with a, a buddy of mine who was sharing with me that at work it's been kind of frustrating for him lately because he knows some fellow Christians, some followers of Jesus who are really good at talking the talk, but they don't know how to really walk the walk. 
Do you know what I'm talking about? He said there are people at work who claim to be followers of Jesus and, and they can talk a good game, but when it comes to really walking the walk and demonstrating their faith, they're not really good at that. Let me ask all of you a question. Do any of you know somebody like that? Raise a hand if you do. I think like almost all of us do, right? Now let me ask a really personal question and just be honest with yourself. Are any of you that person sometimes in your life? I, I think like almost all of us could raise our hand to that as well. Why? What's going on there? Well, I find that a lot of Christians struggle with walking the walk. In other words, turning our visible talk into a relationship with Christ in which we demonstrate both to ourselves and to Almighty God and to those around us that what we say is what we truly believe. It simply said, look up here on the screen. Somebody once said it this way. It says, it costs you nothing to become a Christian, but it costs you everything to be a Christian. And though that's a kind of overly simplistic statement, I mean, some of you are very theologically minded or starting to parse that out already and go, eh, like that. And that's all right. You're probably right. Just take it in its general overview there. And the reality is, is that that's true. That we all know that, that the gospel is the free gift of eternal life to those who will believe and receive. John chapter 1, you can look it up later. That in a very real sense, it's a passive receptivity that brings us into the kingdom. We simply receive what Jesus has already done for us in his redemptive work on the cross. Amen? And so in that sense, it costs us nothing to become a Christian. The real price was paid by Jesus himself. And yet from that point on, the reality is, is that right on the heels of this, God wants us to start acting now like followers of Him. In other words, He wants us to put feet to our faith, to walk the talk. And for any of us who have tried this, we know it's really hard work. It's really hard. I mean, in describing a walk with God, Jesus used phrases like this. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, don't put your hand to the plow and look back. He even said at one point to one guy, hey, don't even go and bury your loved one, but follow me. Christians have coined this activity discipleship over the years. It's the tough road of following Christ and becoming more like him. And make no mistake, it's very costly. That's why we say it costs you nothing to become a Christian, but if you want to be a Christian, be a follower of Jesus, guess what? It's going to cost you everything. I love how the old hymn says it. We didn't sing it today, but you guys know the hymn, Jesus paid it all, right? Jesus paid it all. That's the fact that it costs us nothing. He paid the price. But then what does the hymn writer go on to say? And all to him I owe. In other words, it costs you everything then to be a Christian. And so the question that I need you and I to wrestle with this morning is how? How do we do this? How does one precisely go from being a believer in Christ, affirming all the right doctrines, believing all the right things, even going to church and doing the church thing, to then becoming a serious follower of Jesus? As our vision statement says, somebody who has an unwavering faith in Christ and an unconditional love for those around them. I guess what I'm after today, folks, is how does someone avoid being labeled that classic hypocrite? Wrestle with that with me this morning, will you? I, I mean, all of us at times have been labeled that way. What my friend was struggling earlier with this week, with, with some of his friends at work, quite frankly, he admits that he's been there. I mean, all of us struggle with being labeled or even being a hypocrite. So how do we not become the person who talks a big game, but then lives a life that is spiritually motionless? How do we add grit and substance to our faith? How do we finally grow up? 
and stop playing games with God and with those around us. That's what I want us to wrestle with this morning. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we are studying the New Testament book of 2 Peter this spring here at Scottsdale Bible. And if you've been with us, you know that Peter is challenging us to no less than eight key things that are critical to developing a vibrant walk with God. These are eight things that he wants us to know before he's about to die. See, we're going to see this next week in in Living Color. Jesus has revealed to Peter that he's going to die soon. And so what does Peter do? He takes up his pen and he writes a letter. There's some things, critical things, that he wants us to know before he goes to eternity to spend all eternity with God that he wants us to know on how to live for him. And so as we make our way through chapter 1, as we get to Peter's third big challenge here today, it addresses exactly what we've been talking about. It addresses this issue of how to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And so here it is. Look up here on the screen. Here's the challenge to you and me from Peter, and that is to commit to faith and love, and yet here's the key, and everything in between. That's a challenge you're going to see in the text in just a minute. Commit to faith and love and everything in between. And so what are we talking about there? If you brought a Bible with you here this morning, I need you to open up right now to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11. And we're going to park here for the rest of our time this morning. And to best understand the flow of what Peter is saying here, I need you guys to think with me in two broad categories that I think we're all familiar with, two general areas of life that we're all familiar with, and they are the categories of hard work and then life-giving results. Give me a click here, guys. Hard work that equals life-giving results. Get, Get that in your brain right now. Because we all know this about life, that if you want anything out of it, it's going to take hard work, right? That many times produces life-giving or beneficial results. So if you want to excel in sports, it's hard work that produces life-giving results. And if you see the Cavs game on Friday night, what a game. That was like one of the few times I've been proud to be from Cleveland since I've been here, right? If you didn't see the game, I mean, it was like a once in every 30 years ending to a basketball game. The Cavs are in the Eastern semifinals. There's one second left. They're down by two points, one second left. I'm in bed, and I'm going, you know what? I'm so tired of this kind of stuff. I'm about ready to click the off button, but I said, oh, faithfulness, Jamie, faithfulness. Just one more second. One more second of agony. You can put up with it. And so I'm watching the game, and wouldn't you know, LeBron James. You ever heard of him? LeBron James. Oh, my gosh. One second left. He gets the ball, gets free. They pass it to him. He's at the top of the key. He shoots the ball right through a three-pointer. They win the game. Isn't it incredible? It was like a once-every-25-year shot. And now, now break that down with me. LeBron James is obviously a very gifted basketball player. They knew when he was like six months old that he was going to be a professional basketball player, all right? Like, I was born, like, to be a basketball player. At the same time, gifted or not from birth, the reality is we all know that that guy's probably shot a lot of three-pointers in his life, Right? I mean, ever since he was six, he was throwing three-pointers, and and he's practiced that shot like crazy over the years. And so hard work that night paid off for the Cavaliers. And all of you know that about life. I mean, if you want a promotion at work and you've gone after it, many times hard work gets you that. If you've been in a marriage that is going south, you know that communication and intimacy are the things that are going to save that marriage, and that hard work is what's going to create that communication and intimacy. 
It's even true in the pastorate, by the way. I mean, I got pastor friends that are so eloquent. They've just been born with that gifted tongue, and they don't even study all that hard. And they get up on Sunday morning and deliver the word in some winsome fashion. And years ago, I thought, well, that's not me. It's not me at all. And so every time I get up here, I have about 20 to 25 hours behind me of study and preparation. I won't get up with anything less. I won't get up here on the stage with anything less. Why? Because I've learned that hard work is times, many, many times produces the results. And what you simply need to know, folks, is that on a spiritual and relational level with God, Peter is going to tell us here that it's no different. That hard work is what gives life-giving results. And so enough talk. Let's listen to how Peter says it. Look at verses 5 through 7 of 2 Peter 1. I've labeled this section the hard work. Listen to what he says. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Man, it's hard work just reading that sentence, isn't it? And I would submit to you folks that what's being laid out here is nothing short of hard spiritual work. It's hard work. This is actually what Bible experts call a cascade of eight virtues. Technically, it's known as a chain-saying virtue list. It's a chain that builds one upon another, that links one to another, of eight things needed for a successful walk with God. And you'll notice that it begins with faith, what saves us. That's what we talked about earlier. Faith saves us and that it ends with love, the end goal, obviously, of our Christian life. But notice that in the middle there, it contains six key virtues that will do nothing but cause spiritual maturity if we can somehow incorporate these things in our lives. And yet make no mistake, these things take work. They take hard work. And we know it's hard work because of the language that Peter employs in laying all of this out. This is so cool. He says right there in verse 3, don't miss this, make every effort. Do you see that there? He says, make every effort. And that phrase is a combination of two Greek words in the original language that the Bible was, the New Testament was written in. The Greek word spudin, which means swift action. And then the word peres phero, which means to do your best. So put it together, swift action that requires one's best, that's what Peter's getting at here. He's saying make every effort. As one Bible expert says, your utmost effort. And then as if this were not enough, Peter goes on to say in verse 10, after listing these eight qualities, he says this about a non-hypocritical walk with God. He says to be all the more diligent in light of these things. That's a fascinating phrase, all the more diligent. It carries with it the idea of expending energy, picturing somebody who prioritizes what they're going to focus on and then goes hog wild in expending all of their energy after these things. You get the idea. Hard work, combining all of our swift, energetic effort into something. And all I can say, folks, is that all of us know what it's like to throw all of our weight and effort behind a worthwhile activity in this life and then experience the wonderful benefits. I mean, even if up to this point you've been kind of a spiritual goof-off in your life, prioritizing everything but your walk with God, you've got great hope in understanding Second Peter here because in other areas of your life, you know what it's like to expend a lot of energy on something, to put the hard work in, and have it pay off, don't you? It's just what Peter's saying, do that now in your spiritual life. I remember one of the first times that I... Uh, 
expended an incredible amount of energy in my life and had it paid off. Many of you don't know this about me, but I, I used to play this instrument when I was a kid. I did. I'm not going to dare play it for you now. It's been like 28 years since I played a cornet. But when I was in fifth grade, I, I learned to play the cornet. And uh, by eighth grade, I was playing, well, pretty badly after about four years of learning to play the cornet. And uh, I was playing so badly in the eighth grade band that, yeah, y'all remember how they had first, second, and third sections? I was playing in the third section, third chair. And that was a real bummer for an eighth grader. Because though I know there is melody and harmony, for an eighth grader playing harmony in the third section, we referred to those as the boring notes. Do you remember that? Like the boring notes. Like it didn't sound like the tune. So I was having to play those lower boring notes. And plus, at the concerts, my parents couldn't even see me. Because I was like in the third section way back there. And so like I didn't like playing the cornet. Then I'll never forget the day that the band teacher came in and he said, in three weeks, we're going to have a challenge day or a challenge contest. you remember what those were? It was where you learned a piece of music and you could challenge the people up ahead of you and move up into even another section or another chair. And, and I've told it wasn't always this way, but our teacher said, and he was true to form on this, that, that on that particular challenge day, there was no limit on how far up you could move. And he also said, I'm going to give you the music now. And it was just a one-page sheet of music. Now, folks, I was was not the smartest eighth grader in the class. But I thought to myself, well, duh. I mean, all you got to do is memorize this music, like work really hard at it, and I'm going to blow all the way up in three weeks from now. And sure enough, that's what I did. For the next three weeks, I mastered that piece of music. I can still hear the melody in my head. It haunts me for like the last 28 years. And, uh, and, and I can still hear it. And I just mastered it. I practiced every day. I made sure I had it down. It's just one piece of music, you know. And I got there that day, and the band teacher was blown away. I kid you not, I moved up to the first section, second chair. First section, second chair, just overnight. And my parents got to see me at the concert, and I got to play the fun notes and all of that. And then my career ended six months later. You want to hear how? All right, what happened was, is I got to my freshman year of high school, new school, new band, and what section do you think the freshmen were in? You guessed it, third section, like 80th chair. And I thought, you know, this is for the birds, and I quit. Now, I'm not saying you should do that. I I really am not. I, I regret actually having quit. But you know what else you don't know about me? I picked up guitar. I did. I play guitar too, and I'm never going to play for you guys because I don't do that well either. But anyways, we all know what it's like to pour our energies into something and do it well. So listen very close. Eight qualities or virtues, Peter says, that if you and I can learn to master and perform really well at, are going to do nothing but move us up into the first section of our Christian life. That's what he's laying out here. And so let's look somewhat closer at these eight things here, kind of quickly, that God is after. Let me run through this list so we all understand what's going on here. He begins with faith. Verse 5 says, make every effort to supplement to your faith. Do we all know he's talking about Jesus Christ, right? It's faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's what saves us. It's what brings us into a relationship with Almighty God. It's the starting point of which all other qualities flow from. Without faith, you can't even do the other seven. But then he goes on to say in verse 5, make every effort to supplement to your faith with virtue. I like how the NASB translation says it, moral excellence. It's the ethical quality to our Christian lives. You know, obedience. In other words, having a set of moral values that we live by and that guide us. 
So it's the Ten Commandments, for example. No lying, no adultery, no coveting, no dissing your parents. It's all the ethical commands in the Bible that come part and parcel of knowing and following Jesus. And so Peter's saying that it's not enough just to have faith, to just believe the right things. You need to have a value system commensurate with the Bible of those who claim to know and follow Jesus. It's virtue. It's moral excellence. And then Peter says, and to virtue, add knowledge. To your moral excellence, add knowledge. And you might remember last week when we looked at verse 3 of this passage here, we, we made the comment that knowledge in the Bible is always knowledge by experience. Do you remember that? In other words, it's not just head knowledge, but when the Bible uses the word knowledge, it means that you know somebody personally and intimately. So what Peter is talking about here is intimate knowledge, which is simply another way of saying that if you're going to have a non-hypocritical faith, you've got to pray. You've got to talk to God. You've got to read His Word and have a devotional life so that you hear from Him. In other words, there's a two-way relationship going on here to have this kind of knowledge. He's saying that in addition to faith and moral excellence, you've got to have a kind of knowledge that lets you know God as your father and as your friend. And then Peter adds self-control. He says there in verse 6, and knowledge with self-control. And now this is a very interesting and unusual word for the New Testament. It doesn't appear all that often. Only three times will you find that phrase self-control in the New Testament. And it literally means, now get this, to restrain one's emotions, impulses, and or desires. It carries with it the idea that there's going to be certain desires in life that though there might be legitimate applications to them, that they also have illegitimate applications and don't cave in. Exercise some self-control. And so in Peter's first century world, it included things like this, eating, in which eating has a legitimate application, but it has an illegitimate application when you eat too much or when food becomes your God and you're called a glutton. Or how about sex? There's a legitimate application of sex within the confines of marriage with one partner for the rest of your life. And then there's an illegitimate application for sex outside of marriage or before marriage. Or or how about anger? There's a legitimate application of anger. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And then there's illegitimate applications of anger, raging on those around you and being manipulative as a result. You get the idea. It takes self-control, learning to curb out-of-control desires to be mature in Christ. And so follow the chain. You've got faith, virtue or moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, but he's not done yet. He's only about halfway through. Notice he adds a fifth element to a non-hypocritical walk. He says, and steadfastness. Or with the NIV and NASB label perseverance. He says there in verse 6, and self-control with steadfastness. I love this term steadfastness. In Peter's original uh, world, first century word, world, this word was a military term that literally meant to stand your ground against opposing forces. Isn't that so cool? Stand your ground against opposing forces. As, as one Bible expert says on commenting on this word, he says, and I quote, the mature Christian does not give up. Not when depression or discouragement sets in. Not when doubt raises its ugly head. Not when tough financial times hit. Not when your church does something stupid. Not when your marriage hits hard times. We don't give up. I love how Hebrews 10 verse 39 says it. It says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We're steadfast. And then getting down to the short strokes, he adds a sixth element to his successful walk with God. Godliness. 
Peter says at the tail end of verse 6 there, and steadfastness with godliness. Or as the New International Version puts it, godliness. Or as the New American Standard Bible says it, godliness. Or as the Old King James Version says, godliness. Or as the New King James Version says, let's say it together, godliness. Everybody translates this word the same way. We ought to make a bumper sticker. Godliness matters. Because every Bible translation agrees that that's exactly what Peter is after here. And the word simply means to have an awe or a respect for God. That's what it means. To fear Him as well as love Him. In other words, not to see Him as just some cosmic buddy, but to see Him as He is, holy and good, the Almighty who sustains everything that we see and do not see. We need to be godly. We need to have a reverence for God as we relate to Him as Father as well as Jesus as our Savior. And then, interestingly, Peter switches gears as he enters into the home stretch here because if you've been tracking with us up to this point, you know that almost everything, well, all the six things he's been talking about are all vertical in nature. Have you noticed that? In other words, every one of them has to do with your walk with God. I mean, think about the list. You got faith, and then you got moral excellence, and then you got self-control, and knowledge, and perseverance, and godliness. They all have to do with your vertical relationship with God. And yet the last two things that Peter's going to mention here that are critical to a mature spiritual life ironically have to do with our horizontal relationships. And notice what he says in verse 7. And godliness with brotherly affection. It's the Greek word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It was a powerful New Testament term that literally means familial affection. In other words, it's a love that you would usually reserve only for family. But the New Testament writers came along and said, now we want you to unleash this with each other. Whoa. I mean, I'm supposed to love you as I would love Kim and my three kids? Yes. That's exactly what Peter is saying here. So simply put, he's saying absolutely essential to Christian maturity and following Christ is the ability from going vertical in your life with God to now going horizontal in your brotherly love for fellow believers around you. John would say it even more pointedly. He'd say in 1 John 4.20 that if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You get the picture. And just so we entirely do get the picture of what a non-hypocritical walk with God looks like, Peter ends his eightfold list with love. With love. He says there in verse 7, and brotherly affection with love. And make no mistake, by using the word love here, and I don't miss this, he is broadening the pool (laughs) to include all people. I can't tell you how many times Christians have tried to say to me, well, yeah, 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 I know I need to love people in church. But that doesn't mean I have to love everybody else out there in pagan society, right? I'm like, wrong. You ever read the story of the Good Samaritan? You ever looked up that word love? It's the word agape, and it's used many, many times to refer to all people, all people that are around you. And the word means unconditional love. Most of you know what the word agape means. It means that the love that you have for people does not reside in the object. It resides in the giver of the love. You love because you choose to love. You don't love because they're lovable, That's the brilliance and beauty and power of this term. And it's all over the New Testament as the Magna Carta, the summit even, of what it means to have a Christian experience. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, Out of the three things that remain until Christ returns, love is the greatest. Galatians 5, 6 says, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
Jesus taught us the two greatest commandments all surround love. Love of God and love of others. Love's the capstone of all. I love how one Bible expert says it. He says it's the crown of the Christian advance. So here's the deal, guys. You want to be a mature and effective follower of Jesus? You want to finally grow up and live the Christian life? You want to not be known as a hypocrite in your faith? Peter says, begin with faith and with love, and don't forget everything in between. That's the beauty of this point. Moral excellence, having a lifestyle commensurate with your beliefs. Experiential knowledge, knowing him in prayer and the word. Self-control, you controlling your desires, not the other way around. Steadfastness, never giving up, staying your ground against all opposing forces. Godliness, having an awe and reverence for God. And brotherly affection, learning to love the people in the pew next to you just like you would your own family. Please see this, folks. The book ends, the cover of the book is faith and then love. But the pages in between are these six things that you can learn to do. And the point is obvious. And that is that if you and I can somehow learn to live these traits, if we can somehow incorporate them into our daily world, if Christians could put all their energy behind these things and somehow learn to live these things out, as Peter would go on to say in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and then increasing, then look out. I mean, look out. You will not be known as a hypocrite. And you're going to live what you believe. You're going to walk the talk. And you're going to have joy, peace, purpose, and meaning in your life. And you're going to know God and see God move in a way in your life like you never thought possible. I mean, these things are that powerful in our lives. They really are. So I was driving down the road this week. I think it was Thursday. And I was uh, going to be heading to an appointment later that day with a guy who's really struggling in his Christian walk and making some very unwise decisions. He had called me earlier in the week and just said, Jamie, I need to meet with you. He's a friend of mine. He said, I'm really struggling and hurting. And, and, and I know his story. I know the things he's struggling with. He's just made some bonehead decisions throughout the last few months. And it's caught up with him. And he's not walking very close with God. And so I didn't know exactly, you know, where to go with him and, and how to be gentle but clear. And so I called Tim Kimmel. You guys know Tim. Uh, he's been a previous elder here. He's on the slate to be an elder again next year. And I, I said, Tim, hey, do you mind if I stop by for a few minutes just to run something by you and, and ask for some prayer? And he said, no, and gave me time. And so I did. I stopped by his office. And we went to his office. We closed the door. And I, without breaking confidence, I just shared with him that I have a, a buddy who's struggling with these things. And I said, really, what I want, Tim, more than anything, is just to pray with me, because I think God answers prayers when we do that. And I said, and then maybe any advice you could give. And so we ended up praying over this matter. And then, and then Tim said this to me, and this was really profound stuff. He said, Jamie, here's the deal. He said, people need to wake up each day with a clear purpose for getting out of bed. In other words, with a clear sense of what their life is about and what is going to bring meaning. And he said, your friend doesn't have this yet. Even as a believer in Jesus, he hasn't found that. And so what he needs to find is God's purposes, God's reasons, God's values for living. And when he finds those things, he's going to be in the sweet spot. And though so simple, I thought, that is such a profound, bird's-eye, big-picture way to look at it. That even as a follower of Jesus, I mean, you've got to know what his purposes are for your life. You got to know what he's asking you to pour your life into when you take that first step in the morning when you look at him. Otherwise, your life is going to be kind of hit and miss. 
And folks, what Peter is talking about, these eight qualities, let me tell you, are your reason to live. These are things that you can sink your teeth into, that you can pour all of your spiritual and relational energies into. That's what he's saying. And when you do, look out. In fact, look at how Peter goes on to describe the life-giving results that flow from these eight things. Look at verses 8 through 11. With this, we're going to be done, but you've got to see this. I'm going to give you three results that flow from this, at least. But let's read the text. He says, for if these qualities are yours, and they're increasing, now get this, he says, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these things, and I love this, he says you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, much more quickly, folks, notice no less than three life-giving results that flow out of these eight qualities of the Christian life. First, he says you're going to be very useful to God. Don't you love it? Very useful to God. He says there in verse 8, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Or to put it more positively, you're going to be useful and usable in the hands of Almighty God. You want to make a dent in this world? You want to leave a mark other than some tombstone that says beloved father or whatever they're going to put on your tombstone? I mean, you want to leave a legacy in such a way that people are going to remember a relational interaction with you? Peter says, do these eight things and you're going to be usable in the hands of Almighty God. I mean, think about it, folks. As you put in the hard work to these eight qualities, he might use you to bring somebody into the kingdom. He might use you to give hope to somebody who has lost hope. He might use you to help a struggling believer who has an insurmountable hurdle before them mount the hurdle. He might use you to cause some justice to happen in this world, to maybe help the poor or to help our culture get more aligned with what God says we should be about. I mean, there's so many ways that God will use us. Peter says as we live out these things, as they are yours and increasing, that we will be usable and fruitful in our walk with God. And trust me, the end result will be that you got loads of purpose and meaning as you watch God move in and through your life in the lives of others. I mean, nothing could be more powerful, not even a last-second three-point shot in the Cavs game. Nothing could be more powerful than you being used by Almighty God to affect another human life. That's what Peter says. It's going to happen here. You're going to be usable and fruitful in God's hands. And then notice, secondly, that Peter says if you have these eight things in your life and are growing in them, that you're not going to become a spiritual casualty. Oh, my gosh. Can he really be saying that? Look at verse 10. He says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Wow! You're never going to fall. That's a very interesting phrase, folks. It doesn't mean that you're not going to stumble, that you're not going to trip up, and that you're not going to mess up. But simply that when you do, now don't miss this, it will not lead to disaster or spiritual ruin. How many of you have known spiritual casualties over the years? I've known hundreds I mean, sadly speaking, I've known people who started out well, and now they're not walking with God. They're spiritual casualties. They've given up, or they've been taken out of the game by the evil one himself. I mean, I see it happen way too often. And the reality is, is what Peter is saying is exactly what he means here, is that as you live these eight things, if you diligently apply these to your life, you're not going to be a spiritual casualty. I mean, you're going to have a lot of problems still. 
You're going to mess up. You're going to trip up. You're going to fall. All those things because you're human and you're fallen and all that stuff. But you're not going to become a spiritual casualty. These things will prevent you from being taken out of the game. And so here's the deal. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen well-meaning, good-hearted, trying as best they can and not playing games Christians do some pretty stupid and boneheaded things. Can you relate? I mean, I just see it all the time. And you know where I see it most? In my life. In my life. I, I, I mean, just as an example, I, I, I consider myself a fairly good leader. I, I really only have two contributions to the church. I teach and I lead. 22 different gifts listed in the New Testament. I only got two of them. All right? So there's a lot of things I'm not good at, but I pour a lot of my energies into leading and teaching. So the other day, just more extemporaneously, I got up in front of the staff, uh, all hundred of them, at a staff gathering we have once a month, and I decided I'd give them a challenging but inspirational message to get off their duff and to perform at a higher level. I thought, boy, you're a leader. You can get them to do that. And by the end of about 25 minutes uh, of talk, I realized it just didn't come out like the way I thought it would. In fact, basically what I did is I threatened all of them with their jobs is what I did. And, and, and I didn't mean to say it that way, but I kind of did, you know, and we're, you know, it's a new day and some aren't the right people, the right job, and I'd rather give you insecurity than false security, you know, but I said, but hey, you know, we all have been gifted by God and God has a place for us and everybody's a 10 somewhere and I'm stringing all this together off the top of my head and I realized I didn't say it right. Didn't come out. Dale Galloway, God bless him. He's just a, a great pastor here at this church. He was pastor of one of the largest churches up in the Northwest for about 25 years and then went on to teach at Asbury Seminary. And he's now on our staff, head of family ministries. He comes up to me afterward. He goes, you know, in 45 years, I've never heard a pastor say something like that. And I said, what you all are thinking? I said, well, is that good or bad? And he said, well, we'll see. <laughs> and I thought, that's not really encouraging. I thought, that's not... And sure enough, about a week later, I realized I sent ripples through the staff, you know, of, of fear and dousing morality and all that other... Or yeah, dousing the morale and all... Not dousing morality. Forget I said that. <laughs> All right, dousing morale. And, uh, and I thought, I, I didn't mean to say that. And so now I'm kind of picking up the pieces. So here's the deal. If you see your favorite staff person today, tell them you love them. Tell them your senior pastor loves them. And uh, let's just try to, to build this up. But, you know, I do things like that, right? I, I mean, we all do. We, we do boneheaded things, even with the best intentions. But now listen close. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen God run interference for me and for you and redeem even our mistakes. Amen? That's what grace is about. That's what God does. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. This is really true. What Peter is saying here is, is that, yes, we're going to stumble, but we're not going to fall. God is in this. If you live these eight things, he's going to run interference for you. And then thirdly, and most importantly, and, and biblical writers always save the best for last, notice what Peter says about a life-giving result here, and that is that you're going to get one of those famous well-dones when you get to heaven. Wow. He's saying, if you live these eight things, you're going to get one of those famous, well-done, good and faithful servants when you get to heaven. He says it this way in verse 11. He says, there's going to be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, listen very closely. I know we're just about out of time. This does not mean that you're somehow going to earn your entrance into heaven through living these eight qualities. Do we all understand that? Give me a head nod. He's not saying you earn it. It could be very easy to take it that way. No, we know it's through faith alone and Christ alone that we have eternal life, not through any good works of our own. What he is saying, however, is that there's going to be a grand entrance. There's going to be a reward. There's going to be one of those, hey, 
awesome to see you. Well done. You, did, you, you finished well. You, you did great when you were on earth. You followed me. You submitted to me. You became independently dependent on God. Way to go. Come into your rest. Rather than, and you can read about it in 1 Corinthians 3, where it says that there are going to be some who narrowly escape the flames. And that's when you get to heaven, you go, oh, I think I do know you. Well, come on in, you know, and you kind of sheepishly come in. I mean, that's the picture that some are going to get. And, and, you know, we laugh about it now, but I don't think you want to be one of those people, right? Because, like, the longest you're going to live here is maybe 90 years, eternities forever. And so trust me, about 8 million years into eternity, you're going to wish you'd spent those 90 years better. Amen? And that's the mindset we got to have. And so the reality is, he's saying here, if you live these eight things, man, you are going to be ushered in with a party like you never saw. That's what this phrase means here, to be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. So look up here on the screen one last time. Usefulness to God. You won't become a spiritual casualty. You're going to get one of those well-dones when you get to heaven. I don't know of any follower of Jesus who doesn't want these things. Let's just be honest. Even as messed up as your life might be right now, I don't have anybody who doesn't want these things. And these results can be yours. They really can. But as we establish, it takes hard work involving at least eight traits that, let's be honest, don't come easy. And yet they do come, and they come to those who regularly practice these things, and any of us can do it. It's your choice. As Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. There isn't one person here today that's breathing and believes in Jesus that can't do these eight things with God's empowerment. Let's pray. Father, I wish we could go on and on. I really do. There's a lot more to this text than we've even looked at today, and we've covered a lot. And so, Father, I pray that as we chew on these things, and most importantly, Lord, as we look at these eight qualities, maybe have our quiet time a few days in this text this week, that that we would meditate on what these eight things mean for each of us Monday through Saturday as we live them out. Help us know, Lord, for instance, what areas of virtue or moral excellence we are lacking in that's making us kind of a hypocrite in other people's eyes. Help us, Lord, to learn what areas of self-control we are not kind of measuring up in, what areas of desires have become illegitimate in our lives and are running the show. God, I pray, too, you'd help us maybe to, to learn to be more faith-filled and love-filled with brotherly affection. God, so many things that all add up to a very successful walk with you. God, help us to live these things. May Scottsdale Bible Church be a community of faith, a community of people who are rabid about their walk with you in an unwavering faith and an unconditional love, I pray. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.